If you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, like I said, the experiences that I have gone through, my family's gone through in the last week, um, the Lord used those experiences to really inspire me about what we're going to be teaching and talking about today. And it's a, it's a topic that I don't hear a lot of, of pastors speaking about, and that is that of mental health. Um, let me give you some statistics. Right now, 15% of Americans will require medical treatment for depression sometime in their lifetime. 15%. That number, by the way, is continually going up almost all the time. Right now, around 8 million Americans are clinically depressed to the point that they cannot even function at their jobs. They can't go to work. They can't function. Um, the reality is, is that depression affects each of us at one time or another and to one degree or another, whether it be someone we love or somebody or an experience that we've gone through in and of ourselves. And yet, uh, the church is strangely quiet and silent about this topic because somewhere along the line, we've, we've believed the lie that depression is simply a spiritual issue. Anxiety is just a spiritual issue. If somehow, if I'm able to get my life right with God, then I will no longer experience Depression, we will no longer experience anxiety, and the reality of that is that's just not true. Um, one Christian organization said that even that 7 to 10% of professing Christians will suffer from major depression this year alone. So that by, by that number, in this room right now, there's something like 30 people that are dealing with uh, major anxiety or depression, e either due to um, a chemical imbalance in their head that's causing them to have that depression or due to certain life circumstances or struggles that they're going through in their own life. And, and, and if something like this affects as many people as it does, do you think the Word of God might have something to say about it? Maybe. Well, the reality is, is that the Word of God has lots and lots and lots of things to say about it. In fact, the Word of God gives us story after story of people who have struggled with depression and anxiety throughout the Bible. In fact, if you were to like, explore each major character in the Old Testament, a big chunk of them went through massive times in their life where they were struggling with the dark night of the soul. Have you ever read the book of Psalms? We like to read the happy psalms, but there's a whole, a whole other section of psalms called the imprecatory psalms where the psalmist is super sad or mad or upset. He's expressing anger and dissatisfaction and all, and all of these things. And the author of the psalms is, is called a man after God's own heart while he's struggling. You see, suffering from these things is not necessarily a sin issue. Do you hear me? Depression is not necessarily a result of sin in our lives. There is a type of depression that's caused by chemicals in your brain. As such, you need to consult doctors and professionals and therapists if you have one of those types of depression. I'm just going to be honest with you. There was a time in my life, not even too long ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, where I felt overwhelmed by depression and anxiety. And I would go to the Lord daily, on my face before God, pump my head full of scripture, all of these types of things, but my depression was as such that my flesh was keeping me from hearing and understanding the scripture. And I had to get medicine. And I had to have a therapist. And I still talk to a therapist on occasion today. 
Now, for some of you, you're thinking, oh, that's a sign of spiritual weakness. No, let me, and, and maybe you're right. I think you're wrong, but maybe you're right. Recognizing that there's something in your flesh that is keeping you from hearing the voice of God and doing something about that so that you can hear God's voice again, to me, was one of the biggest steps I had, could do in my life. I had to go seek therapy and a doctor, not so I would feel nothing. A lot of times we think that medications are about feeling nothing. No, no, I, I, I take medications for depression so that I don't have my flesh in the way of hearing the voice of God. I take the medications so I can hear God's voice. And my flesh is not in the way. So first off, I just wanted to preface that by saying, if you are somebody who has struggled with anxiety and depression and all of these types of things, don't struggle by yourself. If there is something that you need as far as medications, that is something that's going to help you hear the voice of God more clearly, go seek a professional and get the help you need. There is nothing spiritually immature about making that choice. Now, there's another type of depression. There's a type of depression that comes along in our lives because of our life experiences, whether it be the loss of a loved one or maybe a prolonged illness or something else that might not have anything to do with our brain chemistry, it has something to do with our experience, maybe where we are spiritually, where we are dealing with life. And this is the type of depression that the Word of God gives us some very, very cool stories um, and, and, and I believe that God extends grace to those who are struggling with depression. And the reason I bring all this up is because one thing about this young man that I, that I, that I know is that, um, that, that committed suicide in the last couple of weeks is that nobody knew how bad had gotten in his mind. He was the last person that anybody thought would actually do what he did. Because his struggle, he had chosen to struggle alone. He was convinced that he was the only one who struggled with it. Nobody struggled like he did. And what we've just heard is that even in the statistics, there are people in this room who are struggling the exact same way that you might be struggling with, the depression and anxiety. It's important for us to recognize that we are not alone in, our, in this human condition, that other people, even pastors, can struggle with anxiety and depression. And the reality is, is that depression is a direct result of living in a world that is not as it should be. You know, the hard part, guys, is that we know, we read the Bible, we know the way it was before the fall of man, we, we see what we're missing, and then we look forward and see the way it's going to be when God restores everything to the way he originally designed it, and we live in the here and the now, seeing the difference between the way it should be and the way it is. And then we wonder, if we don't keep our eyes on the Lord, why we can fall into this dark way of thinking. We, we saturate our mind with all that's wrong in the world. We watch all the different news stations for hours upon hours upon hours every day, saturating our mind with negativity and the things about this world that are true but depressing. And maybe we'll spend 30 seconds reading the Word of God, filling our mind with truth, to combat the all-day saturation of negativity. And then wonder why we're depressed. The Word of God gives us some very clear instructions and has a grace-filled mindset to those of us who struggle with mental illness. And even if you don't have an ongoing battle with depression and anxiety, here's the reality. You will face seasons 
of anxiety and depression in your life throughout your life. So I'm hoping as we get into the Word of God today that you'll have some tools in your tool belt that will help you deal with those struggles when those times do come into your life. This brings me to 1 Kings chapter 19. The main character in this passage is a, is a prophet named Elijah. Elijah is one of the most amazing stories in all of the Bible. If you remember, he is the, the prophet that actually confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. One against all the many. We've, heard, we've taught this story to all these kids for years in Sunday school and everything else. If you remember, he was so confident in his faith and so overwhelmed with his faith that he was mocking the false gods. He actually made a joke about their God being not able to hear their prayers because he was on the toilet. Right there in the Bible, go read for 1 Kings chapter 19. Amazing story. To the point where his faith and in, in interacting with God, um, God sent fire down from heaven to consume an altar that was set up, that was saturated absolutely with water. And the, the, the sacrifice, the altar, all the water was completely consumed by this fire from heaven to the point where there was basically nothing but a crater left on the top of that mountain. All because God decided that he was going to use that miracle to, to, to bring credence to the message of Elijah. Elijah was calling the people of Israel out of Baal worship back to, him, back to himself, back to Yahweh. And Elijah was the prophet that God was using in that moment. And, and Elijah, after that, sprung forward and was so, so filled with energy that he actually slayed all the false prophets there in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 18. I think you could probably say that chapter 18 of 1 Kings was one of the high points of Elijah's life. He had this amazing spiritual victory. God revealed himself in a real physical way. Fire came down from heaven. Everything that God had promised to do, he had done. And then we pick up in chapter 19, a very quick turn. Starting in verse number 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of the one by them, of, of them by this time tomorrow. So what happens? Elijah has this amazing mountaintop, literally mountaintop experience, a gigantic victory. And then a wonderful nice woman sends him a text message saying, I am going to kill you like you killed them. Just a very brief message that starts a tailspin for Elijah that results in him being in one of the darkest depressions of his life. Now, I, I identify with this. Now, don't, don't hear me say, I, I'm not Elijah. <laughs> I'm not Elijah. But the reality is this. You could have a gigantic victory and then the very next day find yourself in the deepest, darkest parts of depression. That, that giant swing of emotional events can have an effect on you emotionally. But not only that, as a pastor, 25 people could say nice things to me. One critical note can have a massive negative effect on my own way of thinking. Somebody, uh, there was a statistic that said that it takes 30 positives to outweigh every negative. Because our mind is geared because of the way we are, are, are in this world. Our, our mind is to focus on that negative feedback that comes in. We, we absorb it. We internalize it. We apply it to our lives. Elijah had an amazing spiritual experience. 
And then Jezebel made a very real threat on his life. Verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Things are going, in, things about depression are beginning to make their way out. What's happening? Well, first off, he was overwhelmed with fear. Then he began to run away. He arose and went to Judah, and then notice he left his servants there. He he, he began the process of isolating himself. Notice that? He was so sad and so depressed that he decided, I'm not going to have these people come with me. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. He was actually praying to God, God, kill me. I, the, the, my life is so worthless. I'm so sad. We can't, we, I'm not going to say he was suicidal because he wasn't in the process of taking his own life, but he despaired of life. He did not want to live anymore. I think many of us can probably identify with the way he's feeling. This is what he said. It is enough now, O Lord, to take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise, and eat. So God is now responding to his darkness, his depression. And, and this is amazing. He looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he, God came along, saw him in his darkness, allowed him to sleep, and then cooked for him some God-made bread and gave it to him to eat and, and drink. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. He's venturing deeper and deeper into this depression, even while God is attempting to, to, to work in him and to provide some of the physical needs that he might have. Verse 9, then here he came to a cave and lodged in it. He isolated himself and he moved alone into a cave. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now notice that in that verse, verse 10, he makes some statements that are absolutely true. Mixed in with a whole lot of lie. He, he had believed untruths that were mixed in. Yes, there were people of Israel who had forsaken the covenant. There are those, many of those who had fallen down their altars. Many had killed prophets. But then he believed that he was the only one left that was living for God. He had believed the lie that there was nobody else except him left. All of these are classic signs of going down into depressive ways of thinking. So how did God respond? Verse 11, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Guess who the low whisper was? It was God. 
Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you notice this is the same question? Um, Anytime in the word of God where there's a repeat going on, where there's a repetition going on, keep in mind that there is no highlighters in the Bible. They couldn't say, hey, pay a special attention to this. So they would use something called repetition in the way that they would interpret scripture so that when you see something twice, it's important to pay attention to what's being said. It's the exact same question in response to what he's going on emotionally in his life. He's basically asking himself, what's your purpose? What are you doing here? Why are you here? And notice that Elijah says exactly the same thing. I have been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Lord switches tactics. And he says, the Lord said, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphet, of Abel-Meholah, don't try to pronounce those things, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed. What's interesting about this is there's multiple things we're going to talk about here in a moment. But notice God's response to, to, to Elijah as he is struggling with this depression and anxiety. Do you see God saying something negative and being judgmental or being judgment toward him? If nothing else, God is being extremely understanding in the reality that he is meeting his physical need by providing him food, allowing him to sleep, finding rest. He then brings out these miraculous circumstances in his life to, be, to try to bring him back to the reality of where he is and who, what his purpose is. He asks the question to get him thinking, you know, why are you here? What are you doing? And then he gives this miraculous, um, this, these miraculous pictures of, of this earthly experiential rage. You have a mighty wind. You have a, a fire. You have all of these things where God is saying that these things are physical things that can be viewed as negative. And he says, listen, God is not in that. No matter how the circumstance that, that you are in, how, how negative they are, God is still speaking. He is still working, according to the song that we just sang. He is working through a still small voice in your life, no matter what the storms of this life around you, no matter what storms you are facing, God is still working. Trying to remind him of who he was and what God had asked him to do. He had a very clear call on his life, a very clear purpose that he had accomplished all the way up to this point where he had this great victory. And then fear took over. What's interesting about God's command at the end, he asked that question. He, he works with understanding. He works with grace toward Elijah. And then finally God says, you know what? It's time for you to pass on your ministry to somebody else. And he gives them a command to give th- this role to three people. Elisha, who we are very much aware of and who we know very well. And then two other people that we're not quite as familiar with, Jehu and I can't remember find the other one. 
one other person. What's interesting is that Elijah only follows through on one of those. Elijah goes and finds Elisha, passes on the mantle of his ministry, and then it is Elisha that comes up and actually follows through with those other two things. He's the one that goes to find Jehu, and he's the one that anoints the king, Hazael, as well. And what's interesting is that God does not um, shower judgment on Elijah for his struggle. In fact, what's interesting is that Elijah becomes one of the only people in all of Scripture that gets taken directly to heaven without dying, without the judgment of physical death. And here's the other reality. God's not done with Elijah even now. Later on, we read in the book of Revelation that, the, that Elijah, in, in some capacity, will return and preach the gospel during the end times. So the reality is, is that his depression, his anxiety, and even his struggle did not disqualify Elijah for ministry. God still had plans to use Elijah in spite of his depression, in spite of the things that he was going through, and he's not done with them yet. Now, there are several things I want you to pick up from this scripture. I'm going to give you a list, and we have to go through them pretty quickly. But first, I want to look at several causes of depression that are located in this story. These are things that Elijah um, went through in his life and how he responded that brought him down this spiral of depression. And the reason I'm sharing them with you is so that we can look out for them. So we can keep an eye on when we can begin recognizing the process that we are going down into this pit, then we can choose to, to, to turn our life back over to God. Now, again, I'm not talking about um, depression caused by um, chemical imbalances and stuff like that. A lot of that stuff you have no control over. You have to get physical help for. But there are things that we can go through and we recognize the signs of leading down this path that can help us to hopefully have the tools to combat them. First, number one, what caused his depression? Fear, number one. Fear. For me, uh, when, I, when I was struggling more so with my depression, the number one cause of it was fear. Not even fear of anything that was remotely realistic. I had watched some movie where a kid got kidnapped, and fear, for whatever reason, that took hold of my mind, and I became absolutely convinced my kids were going to get kidnapped and had something terrible done to them. And that fear root took part in me to the point where it drove my anxiety through the roof. It was crazy. How do we combat fear? I mean, the reality is, is that Elijah, he had a fear of things that were real. He had somebody that wanted to end his life. Never mind that the God of power had come alongside him and done a miraculous things already. The God that could kill the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal and shower fire could definitely protect him. But one note, one life experience inspired a fear in him that brought him down a negative path. Step number one for Elijah's depression was fear. Number two, failure. He allowed himself to define success instead of allowing God to define success. He had just had one of the greatest victories ever, and yet in the, uh, verse 4, he actually says, you know, I'm no different than any other prophet. I have failed because your people are still living in sin. My job was to call them to repentance, and nobody's repenting. Everybody is still sinning. The world is not as it should be. The fruit is not what I pictured it to be in my ministry. So even though he had this gigantic victory, that victory wasn't good enough, and he focused on what he viewed as 
failure. Fear, failure. Number three, exhaustion. Um, I remember when I had my gigantic episode, the first thing I did was drive three hours north, go to my mom's house, and I slept for about 24 hours. Elijah was emotionally and physically spent. He fell asleep on the, on the side of a river, only to be woken up by angels who had cooked him some food, and then he went back to sleep. The reality is that rest, true rest, is not something that we as people are good at. My day off is designed to be the day that I catch up on all the work I couldn't do the other six days of the week. No rest. God created the earth with the intention of rest. One of the first things he ever instituted was the day of Sabbath. And the day of Sabbath, the Jewish people were not allowed to do any work. None. And even from the beginning, you know what they did? They figured out legal ways to be able to accomplish work without violating the Sabbath because they felt that work was the highest ethic. Meanwhile, God is saying, hey, rest in me, will you? Rest in me. Take a day off where you don't have to control everything. Elijah was exhausted. He needed a rest. So fear, failure, exhaustion. Verse 9 tells us that that. Elijah left his servants and he went on alone because one of the greatest things that the enemy will try to do in your life is to isolate you away from other people. He will convince you that you're the only one who suffers the way that you suffer and that nobody else will understand what you're going through. And when he convinces you of that, you isolate yourself away from the very things and the very people that God wants to use to encourage you. Elijah isolated himself. He walked away from his servants, his friends, his fellowship, and he went into a cave by himself. I know that this is a challenge for us too because the reality is, is when you're depressed, when you're sad, when you're overwhelmed, the first thing, the last thing you want to do is go to church. And the last thing you want to do is be around other people. I can't tell you how many times I have to talk myself on Sunday morning. You're going to get out of bed and you're going to go to church tomorrow and you're going to like it. There are times when you just don't want to be around people, but that is the exact opposite of what we need. Elijah isolated himself and it just firmly establish that spiral of depression. Number six, futile thinking. Elijah believed a lie. He, he actually believed he was the only one left to follow Jesus. God perfect, um, purposefully battled that by telling, hey, listen, I've got 7,000 people. Elijah thought he was the only one. And God said to him, listen, I've got 7,000 faithful people who've never bent their knee to Baal. You are believing a lie. And instead of believing a lie, we allow our feelings to control our response to the truth. Did you know that your feelings lie to you? Two of you agree with that. But the reality is this. that like When I was in the middle of my depression, I would saturate my brain with truth, but my feelings would feel the exact opposite. I know God's a way maker but I really didn't think he was going to make a way. I know God's a healer, but he probably won't heal. The idea of what the truth of the word of God says is important because we cannot saturate our minds with, uh, with futile thinking and we must choose truth 
over feelings. The truth has got to be the motivator and the foundation of why we make the decisions that we make. Do not make your decisions based on how you feel because your feelings lie. And finally, Elijah just gave up. In the end, God repeatedly asked him, what are you doing? Why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you here? I'm here with you. God is speaking directly to him. You would think that would be an encouragement. But in the end, Elijah's like, you know what? So much so that God went a different way. Now, it's not like God didn't plan this. He knew what was going to happen. But I think he put it in the word of God so we can recognize the results of somebody who gives up. Fear, failure, exhaustion, isolation, self-pity, futile thinking, choose feelings over truth, giving up. Many of us in this room can identify with this because we've gone through this cycle, even ourselves, recently. So what is the word of God? We're going to go a little over because I don't preach short. What does the word of God say in response to these? Because the word of God is filled with all kinds of teaching about how to battle that exact same thing. But first, I just want to say, notice that God's grace was sufficient for Elijah. God did not give up on Elijah. God knew and accepted where he was physically with his weaknesses. He knew intimately what he was going through and his emotions and his struggles. And he didn't send his judgment on him because he was unable to fulfill what God had called him to do. God did not give up on him. God is still not done with him. And God is still not done with you. And just because you're struggling in this moment, don't think that somehow God's not going to use you in the future. He will use you in the future. He knows your weaknesses, and he's going to use you in spite of your weaknesses. And we'll be able to give God glory for what he's going to do through you because it wasn't your strength that did it. It was his strength in you, in your weaknesses. But can we accept that? Many times we are so enamored with our own strengths that when our strengths can't carry it, that leads us to depression, when in reality, surrender is what should bring us to victory. So in response to everything that, that Elijah went through, how do we fight those things? Number one, recognize where fear comes from. Recognize where fear comes from. Fear does not come from God. Terror does not come from God. Anxiety does not come from God. Those things are sourced in your flesh. They're sourced in my flesh. Scripture says, and for 2 Timothy 1, for God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, let's delineate here. The fear of God is a good thing. That is a righteous and holy and awful, awful, filled with awe, respect for God. That's one thing. Absolute terror for the things that are happening in this world, for the surrounding things around us, that's not coming from God. And if we can recognize that that fear is not coming from God, then we have the opportunity and the tools from the word of God to reject that way of thinking. But it's when we begin thinking and embracing fear as being right and how we should live our life. I can't tell you how many followers of Jesus look at the return of Jesus that's coming with utter terror in their heart. When in reality, guys, we should be looking forward with amazing anticipation for God coming back and making this world the way it should be. The, the, the return of Christ is not something we should look at with terror. It should be something we look at with anticipation. 
So when we understand that that type of fear, that type of terror is not sourced from God, then we have to look to understand that that terror is sourced in our flesh and in the enemy of our soul. And then we can look at the word of God and reject that terror. Number two, we have to, number one is recognize where fear comes from. Number two, don't feed your flesh. Don't feed your flesh. Galatians 7, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What you put into your mind and to your soul matters. Now listen, when I was going through my super deep time of depression, one of the things that set it off is I had watched some some Hallmark movie about a kid that got abducted, and then it sat in my brain. Now, am I going to tell you that watching a Hallmark movie is sinful? Probably. Um, But, (laughs) because I hate Hallmark movies. That's just me. But the reality is, is that there's not not necessarily anything sinful about watching that type of movie, as long as it didn't have all all these unclean things in it. But it affected me and my flesh spiritually. So you know what that means for me? It may not be sinful, but it's not wise for me to watch that type of movie. I know that if I consume that type of movie, it's going to affect my thinking and cause me to go down a path of depression. The reality is this. You guys know what feeds your flesh. You guys know the 